go, go ahead and have a seat. I just want to uh, want us to listen to some words of Scripture together. Uh, these are some verses from Lamentations chapter 3. And starting in verse 17, Jeremiah writes, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Just thinking about uh, the trials and the, and the things that we go through in life, uh, you know, sometimes we might be able to relate to Jeremiah where we just say, I have forgotten what happiness is. But listen, he goes on, he says, So I say my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Verse 19, he says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But then he makes a transition. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, in the spite of, of any trial or, or difficulty or struggle that we're going through, um, the steadfast love of the Lord, it, it's always there. It never ceases. And that's what Jeremiah was taking comfort in, and that's what we can take comfort in this morning, that we always have the steadfast love of the Lord and, uh, and mercies that never come to an end that are new every morning. Let's turn now to God's Word, and we're going to continue uh, the study through the book, through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, and we'll just be considering three verses this morning, uh, verses 37 to 39. So Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. And really, this section, these three verses, are the conclusion of uh, this whole um, kind of scene that's been taking place at the temple. So if you recall back in chapter 21, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And the first thing he did was made his way to the temple. And as he's going to the temple, he's turning over the tables, he's cleansing it. And then chapter 22 and 23 is really Jesus encountering the, the religious leaders, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, and, and he's going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. He's, he's really rebuking them. And I know the last two weeks, you all have looked at the seven woes that Jesus gave against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Uh, these seven statements of impending judgment, and, and really, in our verses, this is the conclusion. Uh, this is his final statement on this judgment that's going to come on the nation of Israel. And, and so there's, there's a lot of application we can take from uh, how Jesus encountered and interacted with the Pharisees and, and dangers about our, our own hearts being prone to hypocrisy and a show of religion. Uh, but what I want to focus on is how this fits into the bigger story of what God is doing with the nation of Israel. Because what we see is that judgment is looming for Israel. And at the heart of that judgment is the destruction of the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. 
God is going to destroy the place where he dwelled among his people. And so the title for this morning's message is The Judgment of Israel and the New Temple. And one thing we're going to see is that while Jesus is destroying and, and, and speaking of God's judgment on the temple, that doesn't mean God's plan to dwell among his people is ended. In fact, God is going to establish a new and true temple through the Messiah. So let's read verses 37 to 39. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what I want to do is just look at three aspects, three points from this passage to, to work through this idea of God's judgment. And the first point is God's desire for the nation of Israel. So what was God's desire for Israel? Second, we'll consider Israel's response to God. And then finally, we'll look at God's judgment on the nation of Israel. And, and the big idea that I want us to walk away with this morning is this. Our God is a God of compassion and long-suffering, but he will ultimately bring judgment on those who continue to reject him. Okay, so if you, if you get anything out of the message this morning, that's, that's what we're going to see in these verses. So first, let's consider God's desire for his people. We see Jesus open here with these words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And, and so when we think about Jerusalem, of course we know it's the capital city of Israel. It's, it's the place where the temple was. It's the place where all of the nation would come and meet with God as he would dwell in their presence, in their midst. And of course, if we go back to the Old Testament, we know the nation of Israel began with the calling of a man named Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And God revealed to him his desire to be his God, to make them into a great nation, to dwell among them. But God's desire to dwell among people uh, didn't begin with Abraham, right? If we go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 1, we know that God created Adam and Eve as his image bearers. God created them to be in fellowship with him. And if you remember in Genesis 1, we're told that God walked in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, dwelling in their midst. In fact, Eden was the first temple. Eden was the first sanctuary where God would commune and fellowship with his people. Uh, there are many things in Scripture that indicate this. Uh, one of which is when we look ahead to the temple being built in 
in Israel and the instructions given there, uh, God tells them to fashion it in such a way that it mirrors a garden sanctuary. So, so we don't have time to look at all the verses, but when God gave instructions to Israel, the temple was to have palm trees made out of wood carvings. On the lampstands were, were leaves and pomegranates. Uh, and, and there were flowers carved into the temple. The curtains were made out of blue and purple and, and indicated sky and water. And, and we think about some other similarities, like when the priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, there would be cherubim guarding the way. And we know there were the cherubim at the east of Eden guarding the entrance. And Adam was really to be a priest. He was to serve, he was to guard, he was to keep, he was to protect and, and proclaim and obey the word of God just like the priest in the sanctuary was to do. Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful, to multiply, to cultivate the earth and to expand the garden temple so that it would fill the earth. God's desire has always been to dwell among humanity in fellowship and communion, to be in relationship with him. Adam and Eve were to expand that so his glory and his presence filled the earth. And yet we know Adam and Eve failed to do that. Rather than guarding and keeping and, and inviting others, multiplying in that fellowship with God, they rebelled. They disobeyed God. And so they were exiled from the garden. Removed from the dwelling place of God. Unable to commune with him. And of course we know that in Adam, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were exiled from God. But all of humanity was exiled from the dwelling place of God. And, and ever since then, we in and of ourselves have been unable to approach God in our sinfulness. But God's desire to rule over a people and to dwell in the midst of a people had not ended. It, it wasn't finished with that first exile. And so he called a man named Abram, and he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bring you into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be like a new Eden. Humanity 2.0, let's restart this, and I'll dwell in your midst. I'll give you my word, and I'll give you priests to keep that word. And I want them to guard and protect it and I'll be with you. I'll make a way through the sacrificial system for a holy God to dwell with sinful man. This was the heart of God to have fellowship with his redeemed people. And if you remember at the end of Deuteronomy, God gave uh, some, a series of blessings and a series of curses. You remember, he told Israel, if you obey my word, if you keep my commandments, if you don't commit idolatry and serve the, the gods of, of the surrounding nations, I'll bless you. I'll be with you. I'll dwell in your midst. 
But likewise, if you rebel, if you sin against me, if you go after other gods and worship them, I will expel you from the land. I will send you into exile. So God's desire was to be the God of Israel, to protect them, to dwell in their midst, to display his steadfast love and goodness upon them. And and really through Israel, right, to uh, display that he wanted that for all of humanity. Israel was to be a light to the surrounding nations, to say, come and see what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God. Come and see what it is to draw near to his presence in the temple. But of course we know the story of Israel. It's the story of Adam. A story of rejecting God, of rebelling against him. They were unwilling to worship and serve him as they were created to do. And so the second thing we see is Israel's response to God. That was God's desire for his people. But how did Israel respond? Well, if we look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36... Uh, we see a summary statement of the whole story of the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36 is chronologically the, the end of the Old Testament. It's telling us, it's summing, us up, summing up for us what took place. And in Second Chronicles 36 verse 14, hear what it says. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And so if we were to go back in the Old Testament, what we see is that Israel's rejection and rebellion against God was persistent. It was was ongoing. It was over the course of hundreds of years after they're brought into, out, of, out, of, out of Egypt and then into the wilderness, from day one, they're making images to bow down and worship. We remember the, the golden calf they made. And even in the temple sanctuary, the, the place where their holy God was to dwell in the midst, Ezekiel and his vision is taken into that temple. He's taken into the secret rooms where the priests were to be preparing themselves for worship of God. And and what does he see in those rooms but them bowing down to idols, detestable images, bowing down and worshiping and serving them rather than worshiping and serving God. But notice in 2 Chronicles 36, it says God had compassion on them. 
Even though they were rebelling, he sent prophets over and over again. Over the course of hundreds of years, he sent prophets to say, come back to me. Uh, turn from your sin and, and have fellowship with God, the source of all goodness and life. This is God's heart for you. This is what he wants for you. And how do they treat the prophets? They, they mocked them. They scoffed at them. Think about the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who, who goes to Israel and says, God loves you. He's rescued you. Would you turn to him? And they beat him. They put him in stocks. They, they threw him in a cistern and he sunk up to mud. Sunk, up, sunk in the mud up to his chest and was rejected by the people. We think of Elijah who that wicked king Ahab wanted to hunt down and kill. Or Isaiah who were told uh, by church history that he was sawn in two by King Manasseh, the son of a great king. These are the kings of Israel. These are the, the spiritual leaders and the priests were right there with them, rejecting the prophets over and over again. And so I think we, we learn at least two things from Israel's history in the Old Testament. And one, one of the things we learn is the sinfulness of humanity. You see, the kings and the religious leaders of Israel are really a microcosm of the human heart. That they're a picture of our own sinful hearts. They were bowing down, committing idolatry. And yes, of course, they were bowing down to literal physical statues made to gods like Baal and others in the surrounding nations that refused to worship God. But scripture tells us that idolatry is not just when we bow down to physical gods made of wood and stone and metal. But idolatry is any time we take God's good gifts that he's given and we turn those into God's. Anytime we take gifts and serve and worship them as gods is idolatry. You see, God made the world full of good gifts, full of beauty, full of wonderful things. I mean, we, we, could, we couldn't count all the marvelous things God has given us. But the human heart, we're told in Romans chapter 1... What, what we're prone to do in our sin is to take God's gifts and to turn those as ends in and of themselves. To, to try to seek our satisfaction in those things rather than our creator. And we were created to be satisfied in God. We were created to find our greatest joy in worshiping and knowing him and loving him. This is God's end for, for mankind that we would be satisfied in fellowship with him. But what we do is take his gifts and turn them into God's. And I think a helpful way of thinking of this is, I think this is 
from C.S. Lewis, he says, when we, when we use God's gifts or creation and we use it like a painting instead of a window, that's idolatry. And what do I mean by that? When, when, we, when you look at a painting, what do you do? You, you go and you, you look at that painting as an end of itself, right? You're trying to get enjoyment and beauty and your experience just from that painting. You're not, you're not trying to go beyond that. Uh, it's, it's something you don't see through. It's an end. But when you look out a window, it's something you look through. And you look out and you see further. And if we look out these windows, we see beauty of God's creation. We see his glory spilling and the light coming in through those windows. And that's what all created gifts are like. Whether it's marriage or sex or work. These are gifts meant to be windows through which we see the glory and goodness of our God. But so often we turn those and make them ends in of themselves. We worship and serve creation rather than the creator. This is at the core of Israel's rebellion and it's at the core of our own sinful rebellion. In Israel we see our sinful hearts on display. And God is a holy God who hates idolatry. He hates idolatry because he knows he's the supreme treasure. He's the supreme beauty and goodness of all things. But God also hates when we go after idols. You know why? Because God loves us. God wants us to be satisfied and have true life in him and so he knows that as we serve and go after idols these lead to our destruction and so the second thing we see from the story of Israel is God's compassionate heart I had a a neighbor many years ago uh, that we were reaching out to and trying to share the gospel with and we had asked her if she had ever read the Old Testament or read the Bible. And she said, you know, I tried to start reading the Old Testament one time. And, uh, you know, we, we asked her what she thought of it. And she said, to me, it seemed like God was just an angry big kid that didn't get what he wanted. And so he was just kind of lashing out in anger. Friends, that picture of God could not be further from the truth of what we see in the Bible. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. I want to give you life in my presence. If we think back to uh, Exodus chapter 34, when Israel has just come out of Egypt. And you remember Moses is leading them through the wilderness. They're getting ready to go to the promised land. Moses says to God, would you you show me your glory, God? Will you show me who you are? 
And God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. And I will declare to you my name. That is, I I will tell you, Moses, I'll show you who I am. What's at the very center of who I am, I'll make that known to you. And if you remember, God takes Moses and he puts him in the cleft of the rock. He says, no man can look on my glory in full and live. And so I'll pass by you and you'll see the back of me. And I'll declare to you who I am. And so when this happens in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, God tells us who he is. Listen to what he says. This is his own divine disclosure of his very essence. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of parents to the third and fourth generation. So God's own disclosure of his heart of who he is, is first and foremost the compassionate, the gracious, the merciful God who is slow to anger. And I love this quote from Dane Ortland. He wrote a great book called Lowly and Gentle. And listen to what he says. He says, God does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. Or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking. Or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority, his deepest delight, his first reaction, his heart is merciful and gracious. We tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, And divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth from God at the slightest prick. This is the heart of our God. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And with Israel, he's saying, Israel... I'm sending you prophets because I love you. I want to dwell in your midst. I want to give you life abundantly. Would you turn and live? But they were unwilling. They refused for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so God brought judgment. This is our third point we see. God brings judgment on those who don't repent. And we see that even in in that self-disclosure. He says who he is. He wants to show love to thousands, but for those who are unrepentant, for those who refuse to come and find forgiveness, he's a holy God. He's a just God. He's not a wishy-washy, buddy kind of God. He's not a softy God. He's not a pushover God. His heart's desire is that people will know him and find life in him and forgiveness. But if they refuse, 
He's a holy God who will judge. And so at the, the end of Second Chronicles there, back in ver- chapter 36, God says, I'm going to judge you, Israel. I- I'm going to raise up the nation of Babylon, a pagan nation that, that doesn't worship me at all, and I'm going to use them to judge you. And he tells them they're going to come into Jerusalem They're going to destroy the city. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to carry everything away and God is going to exile his people from the land. God's people will no longer be able to go and have fellowship with God in the temple. God had been incredibly patient and long-suffering, but they refused to repent. And so we see this pattern in the Old Testament, this pattern of with Adam and with Israel, that God's desire is to rule over a people, to dwell in their midst, to give them life. And yet when they rebel and commit idolatry and they refuse to repent, he expels them from his presence. But even as the prophets spoke in the Old Testament and they spoke of this judgment, they at the same time held forth hope. And they said, even though God's going to bring this judgment on you, one day you'll be brought back into the land and there'll be a new and greater temple. In fact, if we had time to look at the end of Ezekiel, there's, there's several chapters there of this temple that far exceeds the first temple. God says, I'm going to do this so I can dwell among my people. So with all that background in mind, let's come back to our passage in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, the the Israelites have been back in the promised land after exile. They, They have a rebuilt temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, the second temple, but it's it's nowhere near the glory and majesty and size and beauty that God promised through the prophets. In fact, when the people saw it, they wept because it was such a small shadow of the former glory. And Jesus has been rebuking, giving these woes to the religious leaders just like the prophets in the Old Testament did. Jesus says, the last prophet has come and he's saying, if you don't repent, God's going to bring judgment. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were just like the leaders before that exile by Babylon. Instead of using the temple to worship and serve God, they were using it as a place of personal profit, a place of commerce and idolatry. And so Jesus, as the last prophet, he's rebuking them. He's calling them to turn, lest God bring judgment, and they refuse. And in verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, you're just like your fathers. Just as you rejected Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah, you're going to reject me. And so you deserve judgment. But hear the heart of Jesus in verse 37. He says, how often I would have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Notice the imagery there. And hear the heart of our Savior. Israel, I want you to come to me like a mother hen protects her chicks. That's my desire for you. But you are unwilling. We're told elsewhere in Luke's account that Jesus actually was weeping over Jerusalem. Desiring them to find salvation. And I like how one commentator puts it. He says, the image of a hen and chickens envisions a farmyard fire in which the hen gathers her brood under her wings for safety. When the fire's over, she may have been scorched to death, but the chickens will be alive, protected under her wings. This was the heart of God. Judgment is impending, it's coming, and Jesus is saying, I want to protect you, I want to care for you, I want to bring you into safety and security. And so we see that Jesus' heart is just like his Father's heart in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus is the full manifestation of God's glory and name. And if we think back to his whole ministry, what he did was went around showing compassion and love and mercy extending grace. And eventually, he's going to go to the cross and take that judgment, that fire of judgment upon himself. And all who will willingly turn to him and come under his wings by faith will find protection. Our God is a God of compassion and long-suffering, but he will ultimately bring judgment on those who continue to reject him. And so we see in verse 38, Jesus says, see your house is left to you desolate. Now remember, Jesus is standing in the courtyard of the temple, and, and the house of God, the house of the Lord, is the temple. And, and just a couple of verses later in chapter 24, Jesus is going to walk away from the temple with his disciples. They're going to look back at it. And Jesus is going to say, not one stone of that temple will remain. It will be completely destroyed. God is going to judge Israel just like he judged them in the Old Testament. The Roman pagan nation is going to come in and demolish his temple, and God's presence and access to worshiping him will no longer be in the midst of his people. Jesus is telling the disciples, Jesus is telling the religious leaders, God's not going to meet with you anymore in a building in Jerusalem. Judgment has come. I've been patient, I've been compassionate, but now your judgment has come. But listen, God's desire to dwell among a people and, and to be in their midst has not altered. It has not changed. And even though the physical temple is going to be destroyed, God has no intention of, of uh, leaving his presence from among his people. 
In Israel's judgment, a new temple is going to be established. Jesus himself is going to be that cornerstone upon which a new temple will be founded and established. We see that back in Matthew 21. Do you remember the the parable of the tenants? Jesus said uh, that, you know, he, he had a, his father had planted a garden, and, and when it came time to reap a harvest, he sent servants. They were rejected, they were mocked, they were killed. Uh, this happened several times. Those servants were a picture of the prophets coming to the nation of Israel. And so finally, God sends his son in a last attempt to bring his people back to him, but they refuse they reject him as well and they kill him Jesus is predicting his own death and he says this Jesus says this quoting from Psalm 118 he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you that's Israel and given to a people producing its fruits And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. But when this stone falls on anyone, it will crush him. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he's he's saying there's something greater than the temple here. And Jesus has uh, said in the temple before, if you destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up again. But he was talking about himself. He was saying, I'm going to build a new temple, a new place where people can meet with the living God. And we see in Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 that Jesus as the cornerstone has has brought other living stones to be a part of this new building, a new people of God that includes both Jew and Gentile. No longer just the nation of Israel, but all who come to faith, all who come to the temple and, and believe on Christ are made one with him, are made into a house where God's presence can dwell. You see, in the Old Testament, the way that sinful humanity approached God was through the temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system. But now, Jesus has come as the great high priest, not to offer the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but his very own blood and life. The final sacrifice so that all who have faith in him can draw near to God. God's glory and presence is found in us. The new temple, those who are built on that cornerstone, Jesus, where we have access to God. God's glory and presence no longer lives in a building in Palestine, but in you and in me. God dwells in our very midst by his Holy Spirit, and we can worship him and know him as we are created to. Now in verse 39, Jesus gives this interesting comment here. He tells the Jews, the Israelites, that I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, you're you're not going to see me again, but you will see me. And when you do, you will acknowledge me as the Messiah. 
So, so there's this idea that Jesus is going to come another time and the Jews will acknowledge him. They will recognize who he is and, and at least some of them will not continue to reject him like the, the religious leaders had done. And we're going to see next week in Matthew 24 when this, this time of Jesus coming is, is the second coming. It's when he comes again. And, and Jesus seems to indicate here, he seems to leave the door open to this idea. You, you see, back in chapter 21, when Jesus first entered Jerusalem, there was a crowd crying out this very verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The, the people were acknowledging, you're the Messiah. We, we want to receive you as king. And Jesus is saying to the Israelites, when I come a second time, you will recognize me as your king. Now again, we, we know from scripture that there's going to be a remnant of Israel that, that will embrace Jesus. But, but more broadly than that, it seems that Jesus is saying, when I come back a second time, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and acknowledge who I am. But the question is, will you receive Jesus as a consuming judge or welcome him as king, as Messiah? Of course, we know that the religious leaders listening to Jesus on this day continue in their rejection. And they beat him, they mock him, they hang him on a cross. And just 40 years after Jesus dies and rises again, everything he says here comes to pass. In AD 70, the Romans come into the city and they demolish the temple. And it no longer exists. And Jesus says that that destruction that came upon Israel was just a small picture of what will happen at the end of the age when Jesus returns for those who continue to reject him, they will experience his judgment. The Israelites were unwilling to come to Jesus and find refuge under his wings. And so they faced judgment. And, and so I, I wonder about you here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're like those religious leaders, those Pharisees. Externally, you do the right things. You come to church. You read your Bible. Maybe you even engage in acts of service. But, but if we were to go into the secret room of your life, look behind the doors of your day-to-day -day life, are you one who's worshiping and serving God? Or are you in your heart of hearts an idol worshiper, bent on serving creation and, and loving your own pleasure or self-righteousness rather than seeking to glorify God? Would you hear the compassionate cry of our Savior this morning? Would you hear him saying to you, would you come to me? I want to gather you and protect you from the fires of judgment that are to come. 
That's my heart is to pour out my steadfast love and compassion on you. If you'll but turn, you will live. That's what I want. So much so I'm willing to go to the cross and take that punishment in your place. I'm willing to be destroyed if it means your salvation. Every knee will bow and confess when Jesus returns. But will that day be a day of great joy for you or or a day of great terror in God's righteous judgment? God has been so compassionate and patient and long-suffering, allowing humanity to go on for thousands of years, allowing each of us each day to breathe, to live, even though we are prone to commit idolatry over and over again. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our God is a God of compassion and long-suffering, but he will bring judgment on those who reject him. And if you're a, a believer here this morning, if you're someone who has taken refuge under his wings through faith in Christ, uh, would you just be reminded this morning of his great love for you? Would you see his willingness to come and bear that judgment? Would you see his desire to care for you, to protect you, to nourish you as a mother hen with a chick? This is God's heart for you, and not only that, but he has joined you to Christ as a living stone. He has made you a part of that temple where he dwells in us through his spirit so that we can know him and fellowship with him. We no longer have to go to a building. This is a a beautiful building. I love worshiping here with you, but you are the house of God. You are the place where God dwells by his spirit. And so may we be those who are cleansed regularly. May Jesus turn over any tables of idolatry in the hidden rooms of our hearts so that we are holy and filled with him. And may we show God's presence and glory First in our families, then in our neighborhoods, then in our city, and to the ends of the earth, calling others to find refuge in Jesus, calling others to say, hey, come and join as a part of this temple so you can know the living God. This is his heart for us. This is what he's done for us through our Savior Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a compassionate Savior who reflects your own heart. We praise you that at the cross he took our place of punishment. He was utterly destroyed so that we might be saved. And so, Lord, we worship you. We praise you for such a great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. And now we have opportunity to remember our Savior through the, the juice and the bread. Um, we're going to play a song. Uh, you're welcome to just bow your head uh, to listen. Uh, 
reflect and to pray. And then when you're ready to, to take the, the juice, uh, represents Jesus' blood uh, shed for us, and to take the bread, which is a picture of his body broken on our behalf. If you don't know Jesus, um, we just ask you to, to observe, um, to reflect, and to perhaps today to take that step of faith, to tell, to tell Jesus that uh, you are ready to turn from your sin and turn to him and trust in what he has done on your behalf. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea. 